I'm joined today by Todd Gardner, co-founder of Track.js. Thanks for joining me, Todd. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background, please? Sure. So I've been uh, working in this crazy IT slash software world for probably a little over 10 years. Um, I started actually in the infrastructure side of the world and migrated over to software. Um, I've been a consultant for about five years, focusing pretty much in uh, JavaScript, single-page applications, heavy you know, web applications. And a few years ago, I got together with, a, with my partners, or, or my future partners, and we decided, you know what? Every project that we're on, we, we have this error handling problem. And so we decided to form a company um, called TrackJS to solve that. And so that's, that's what we've been working on the last couple of years, is this, um, this error tracking tool. So can you tell me a little bit about TrackJS? Yeah, so the, the goal of this is that if you're building um, a heavy JavaScript application, a ton of your logic is actually being executed in the browser. It's not being executed in your servers where you have like robust monitoring tools and all of that. It's executing out in this environment that you don't control. And the language that we're writing it in is this crazy asynchronous thing that's happening way out on the other side of the world where when something goes wrong, the stack trace you get off of it might not mean anything to you. It might be totally um, totally incomprehensible to decipher what it meant and how did the user get into that state. And so what we took a little bit different approach uh, when we approached the problem where we're trying to track all of the things, all of the, the contextual events that led a user down a bad path. And so what TrackJS does is we listen before an error happens. We're listening to what are the AJAX events that are happening? What is the user doing in your app? What are they clicking on? What are they inputting? What are they, what are they doing? And then how is your application state changing um, over time? And so we try and record those events as well. So that when an error happens, when something and when an exceptional event happens, we can take that error information as good as we can get it, and we can combine a bunch of extra information about how did the end user get into this state. And we capture all of that together and give it back to the developers or the operations people or whoever is responsible for maintaining this application on the web and say, here is a real error that a real customer ran into. Here are the steps that they took. Here's how the application responded. And here's what went wrong. So we, we think that this is a much better way to, to fix the errors that are happening in production today. So just to clarify a couple of things, when you say an error occurring, are you talking about a server-side error? Well, what I'm talking about is a client-side error. Okay. So if something is, is blowing up in the browser, now why it's blowing up we can't necessarily say. It could be just a simple logical error. There's a, a bug in the JavaScript that we never expected. It could be a resource issue where the server responded in either a too slow or in a way that we didn't expect and the JavaScript didn't know how to handle it. It could be a user error where the user has actually is using a client, a browser, and they've modified it in some way, either with invasive plugins or they're just using a brand new version or, or something is different that we don't expect. And so it, it executes the JavaScript in a way we don't expect. So there's all kinds of different ways that it can blow up on the client side. And we're not trying to, you know, limit to only that, um, to only JavaScript logical errors. We're trying to capture anything that goes wrong that is visible on the client side. We will tell you about it because that's what the user is actually using. That is what your customer is actually interacting with is your web app. It's not your server. 
No, fair enough. Sorry, I got a little confused when you mentioned stack traces. I'm pretty much a almost 100% backend, and when I think of stack traces, I'm thinking of from user code down to the Microsoft code and onwards from there. In newer browsers, um, when an error happens, when a true logical error happens, um, and an error record is created, it has a stack trace that shows all of the JavaScript functions that were evoked in order. The problem here is that, um, well, the first problem is that chances are in your code you've minified it. And so those stack traces, they don't have real logical function names. They have minified function names. And so you can get around that if you use this concept called a source map, which will tie that back together. But that's not always, um, it's not always a good option. The other problem with that is that stack trace isn't complete. So the stack trace only goes back to the time when it was invoked from the native code. So let's say, let's say you're writing an Ajax method. You're, you're making some Ajax call of the server. And then you would have a callback that, hey, when this Ajax call is done, I want to do something. I'm going to show a widget on the page. If that callback has an error in it, the stack trace only has one thing in it. It only has this, this um, XHR um, complete um, thing. It doesn't know, well, what started that Ajax event? It doesn't know anything that happened before that asynchronous boundary. And so when these kind of errors happen, it becomes very difficult to reason about how did my application get into this bad state? So when, when as a developer, should I use TrackJS? Is it during development, at a release time, or during ongoing uh, regular production use? Um, we think that the best value of it is in ongoing production monitoring. And so you've built yourself a JavaScript application in Angular, Ember, Backbone, or Knockout, or Vanilla, or whatever, and you need to launch this thing out, and, out into the world. But this world is, is crazy, and there's new browsers hitting all the time, and the network is unpredictable, and resources will load in different orders. And so TrackJS sits there and watches how the actual customers are interacting with your app so that when an error happens, you know about it and you can fix it. Now, that said, there are a couple of our customers who use this thing in, like, a QA kind of role where they'll put it in their, their test or QA environments um, so that when their testers run into an error, there's, it's basically like a free, awesome bug report delivered directly to their developers, um, which is an awesome use case. It's just that was just something that kind of happened because people thought it was cool. We didn't build, the, we didn't build TrackJS for that use case. So from your perspective, it's more of an ongoing production, always-on type tool. Yeah, so you put this thing in production and you leave it there and it's watching as things are going, happening over time. Because, so this is, this is a, I think, a big difference between people who are building server-side apps and people who build client-side apps. When you build a server-side app, you can say, we're compiling for .NET 3.5 or Java 1.4. We have total control of the system. It will always run this version of Windows, always run this version of Linux, always have this version of the CLR on it, and it doesn't change unless some ops person goes in there and changes it. And so hypothetically, if this is a, if there are no bugs in the application, if it's operationally robust, you could run something for 10 years, and it's just fine. It just keeps on going. But you can't run a JavaScript app for 10 years because later this year, Microsoft Spartan is going to hit. Do you know if your app works? I have no idea. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. About, you know, 
20% of the apps that I interact with broke when IE11 dropped, broke in like subtle ways where like people were inspecting the user agent string to do something or, or other random, you know, interactions with Windows media tags or, or whatever. And this constant pace is happening not just with Microsoft, but it's happening with Chrome. New versions of Chrome are dropping. New versions of the API are dropping. And people are fixing subtle things inside of JavaScript. And some of them are for the better, you know, where, you know, we're fixing old bugs. But sometimes people write apps expecting that bug behavior. Yes, and yes. You, you never know. common. <laughs> and, and so when you build this JavaScript app, you can't just say, hey, we built an Angular 1.2.1 app and we're shipping it to production and we never have to touch it again. That's just, it's not something you could do. You have to be there to see how does it evolve over time. Will it continue to work as new browsers hit, as new performance requirements hit, as a new, a new Android smartphone takes over the market, as whatever happens? It's this, you don't control the environment you run in. Oh, I'm afraid the whole works on my computer doesn't really apply for these kind of apps. Yeah, so many like web developers especially, we all have like, I mean, it's, it's the trend is we all have like these really beefy MacBooks and we, we all run like latest either, you know, Chrome Canary or latest Chrome or latest Firefox or whatever. And so, of course, when we run the page with our awesome, you know, 16 gigs of memory and solid state drives, everything just works awesome. Yeah, and it should. And yeah. It and that's oh, it. It's awesome. enough. I'm right. done here. Yeah, all done. Next Ship project, it. please. Yeah, until you realize that like the bulk of the people who are actually willing to pay for that app are like, these corporate people on an IE7 computer running Windows XP, and every time they scroll the page, the whole thing, like, freaks out and flips upside down. And it's just, we we can't predict that, like, just because it works on our machine, that doesn't mean anything in the web. On the point, though, of, you know, there, there is a constant churn of new browsers, new versions, new devices. Can TrackJS be turned on and off if, let's say, I didn't want to run it in production all the time, but I wanted the ability to flip a switch? Hey, I know that there's some new version of Chrome coming out next Thursday. I want it back on for a week. Sure, for sure, for sure. So, like, to install TrackJS, we have a, a model really similar to, like, a Google Analytics, if you're familiar with that, where to install us, we give you this JavaScript snippet that you need to put on your page. And when that's on your page, it downloads our script and we instrument the browser for you. If you don't want us on there, um, we have some configuration things that you could, you know, programmatically just set a value to false and we won't initialize. Or you could just remove that script tag altogether and just we're not on the page. Um, if you want to um, do it programmatically so you're not doing code changes all the time, you'd probably need to be in a situation where you get to dynamically write your initial HTML file populated by some property system um, so that you could dynamically change whether you want us on the page or not. Um, but, you know, that depends on, on your particular app and, you know, what you're using. Or can you have it, say, configurable for particular browsers that you know, i.e., is more problematic, so I only want it turned on for this particular browser in this operating system or this device? Yeah, you could. Um, I haven't heard anybody use, with that particular use case, but we would totally <laughs> be able to support it. Um, we have this property that you can set. So essentially, before TrackJS goes on the page, you, you can populate this configuration object with all of the ways that you want to customize what we're listening to and what errors to track and what errors to ignore and that sort of thing. And so if you had a particular use case, we're saying, 
you know, I only really care about the errors that come off of Internet Explorer 9, and that's just the only thing you care about. You could build a little function um, that would interpret the user agent string and find only ones that are for Internet Explorer 9 and only set the enabled flag on track.js to true if that user agent string matches. That, that would totally be something you could do if you had that particular use case. We've tried to keep our JavaScript API like really powerful, really like low level, so that you could do just about anything you want with configuring your client-side application. So that kind of brings me to maybe the, the why I'm, I'm asking those questions of, you know, what's the overhead of having TrackJS with regard to, let's say, processing on the device and then network utilization? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So when TrackJS goes onto the page, we do this practice called duck punching. It's also known as monkey patching. Um, we dive into the low levels of the browser and we wrap up and replace certain low-level functions like... XML HTTP request, the console, um, some eventing systems, so that we can listen to these events. So that does present a very small level of overhead when we do that. And so essentially any time a network request happens, there is a small function call passed through our, fu- through our function that is not zero. However, when you consider everything else that impacts performance on the client side, it could essentially be zero. Very, it's very, very rare that actual JavaScript execution time is the limiting performance factor on a client-side device. Much more likely, it's painting, CSS reflow, DOM manipulation. Those are usually the things that like cause uh, client-side apps to come to their knees. And we don't get involved in that pipeline at all. Um, all that we're adding is a extra function call-through on certain low-level things. Um, a couple of our customers have actually run us through like JSPerf on their apps, and they've found no significant difference um, in their app. Uh, nobody has ever noticed any performance limitation when they've installed TrackJS. The other thing you asked about is network. And so TrackJS makes two network requests as part of its lifetime. The first is what we call the beacon. So one of the things that we track is how many hits your site gets. And we do that um, so that we can correlate how many errors per hit you're getting um, because just because you have more errors doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. You might have had a whole lot more hits to your site as well. And so we do this to kind of correlate the two ideas together. That's sent as a simple, like, one-by-one uh, one transparent GIF request to the server, and it's sent um, a few hundred milliseconds after page load. So the idea is that we shouldn't impact any of your rendering time with that. We should have... Um, we should have set that up so that we are waiting until after everything is done before we make that request. And so it's just a very simple request. There's no return. There's just, hey, we sent some values up on a query string. The second value that we send up is when an actual, an exceptional event happens. And that's a full-on Ajax post back to our system. There is no, um, that can take, it on average, it takes about 35 to 45 milliseconds to come back. Um, we do very, very little processing in on the front door and try and return as fast as we can. Um, but we've attached no callback to it. So if that call fails for whatever reason, it should not slow down your page in any way. So I'm backtracking a tiny bit, but just something popped into my head. Um, can TrackJS be used to kind of learn how users are using uh, an application and send information, not just for exceptions, but the user did A, then B, and then F, and then went back to C. 
It, it could, but that's not really our target. So there, there's actually a really robust market for what you just talked about, which is just general marketing analytics. Um, and there's some real strong tools in that space that we use on, on our app. There, I mean, Google Analytics is the obvious free one that you can use to do, get some of that understanding. And there's some other great ones like Mixpanel and Customer.io and Intercom that can tell you tons about how customers are interacting with your app and what they do. Um, and so we're not really the best. I wouldn't use TrackJS for that use case um, just because we're not um, – there's other tools that you can get for – that are very awesomely targeted at that problem. What we were trying to do with TrackJS is take that same concept and build a tool not for the marketers, not for the people who are designing the product, but make it for the developers, make it for the people who are making the products awesome. Um, and so deliver that information back to them so they can fix the bugs and make it even better. So who, what kind of companies are using TrackJS? Our best, our, our core group of people who use us are people who are building a single page or JavaScript heavy application, usually behind some sort of an authentication wall. And so if you are selling a software as a service or you are an enterprise with like a client base that you have that like a rich app that does something, um, that's kind of our core, our core um, market that people are who really benefit off of us. So some examples of that would be like um, Zamarian uses or Zamarin uses us. Uh, they have this Insights app, which is actually a similar product. And so if you use um, if you use their tool to generate a um, to build a mobile app, they give you this you know performance and error tracking dashboard for that mobile app. Well, so that tracking dashboard is a JavaScript heavy application, and so they use TrackJS on that to catch errors that that come out of their tracking UI. Um, and so that's kind of a meta example, I suppose, is there's an error tracking tool that uses our error tracking tool, but we're playing in different in different worlds. Um, but that's that's actually a really good use case for the for the core people that get the most value out of TrackJS. And so if you're building like an Angular Ember Backbone app, and you have a you know, known set of users who are using it that you can identify them and, and each user who uses your site has a, has a high value to you to make sure you, have a, you give them a great experience, that's where TrekJS really shines. Um, we do have a few people um, like the Lonely Planet, which is a travel site that's a little bit outside of our, our core zone, but we still love that we can help them um, because there are, you know, fundamentally a content site that's ad-supported and so they have a little bit different constraints where, um, you know, ad providers and social providers tend to generate a lot of errors out of their JavaScript because just it's not particularly good usually. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And, and so they have a problem where, that we help them with, which is just trying to filter out the noise. So how do we figure out what are the real errors and what were the ad errors? And when it's an ad error, does it mean that the ad didn't get shown? And how do we help them detect that? But that's, that's kind of a smaller use case. Um, we absolutely love helping that, but that's not the core people who get the most benefit out of TrackJS. So it seems like it's, is it a more tech-savvy type companies that go for TrackJS? Because Xamarin are obviously a, a very high-tech development company. Yeah, so in general, I would expect um, our customers to be um, you know, mid to senior level uh, web developers. So people who who know their way around the JavaScript language, who are um, are using like one of the frameworks, 
or building their own like uh, base level system. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of traction or a whole lot of interest from people who maybe just, you know, sprinkle a little bit of jQuery here and there around a server side generated app, or if they're, you know, just kind of doing a drag and drop kind of application, like through WordPress or through um, uh, like Squarespace or those sort of things. We, we haven't seen as much interest there. We absolutely would add some value there. It's just the information that we deliver is really technical and you need to have a certain level of um, understanding of JavaScript to be able to debug the issues that we, we throw at you. Um, and so the, the people who, who value us the most are definitely like that mid to senior level web developer. I imagine as well that they've got very high demanding applications as opposed to a WordPress or a, um, some other type of content management where your real problems are not about uh, high speed. It's more about your content and your customer is more lax about how quick or how many errors they get. Yeah, there, there's a, a notion that we think about of like, what is the value per customer? which I think changes. So like if you're building a content site, if you're, if you're building just a web application or just a, a website that you get your money off of ads, the value that you get off of each customer who hits your page is relatively low is you're only probably making a few cents per, you know, unique person who's coming to your site. And that's off of the likelihood that they're going to click on an ad and the revenue you would get off of that. And so you have relatively low about lots and lots of relatively low value customers. So you have each individual person hitting your site is only worth a little bit to you, but you need to get millions and millions and millions of people to your site in order to become profitable. TrackJS doesn't, um, doesn't have as strong of a value proposition there because we're trying to help you get down to as close to zero errors as you can. And when each customer interaction isn't, um, isn't as valuable, it's a harder sell to say, well, we only have like, you know, 5% of our users who encounter this problem. Is it even worth fixing? Um, as opposed to like a software as a service company, like um, I would argue that this um, Zamarian Insights app is probably a software as a service. Because I don't in fact know how they charge it, but I would imagine that there's some sort of subscription to use their tool. Um, each customer using it has a relatively high value. So each person coming in has is has a value to that company that's significantly high. They're paying a subscription. They've bought licenses to the tool, and they want to make sure that they have the best experience possible. And so in that case, TrackJS really helps to, to help that company get down to zero errors to make sure that every one of their customers has an awesome experience and keeps subscribing and, like, stays with them. And it goes towards their reputation as well. They're trying to produce something that's incredibly high quality and the last thing you want are errors popping up on a page. Yeah, yeah. So if you've got tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users hitting these apps, how are you gathering all that information that's being sent back to you? That that has been the biggest challenge in growing this business is constantly um, building a system that was, was, we think will scale and then watching it um, not scale anymore as we hit a new, you know, threshold of customers and then repeating that process several times over. Um, so today we are, um, our, our error tracker client is initialized about a billion times every month and we pull in errors at about 120 a second, um, all day long, which is, um, not, I mean, it's not like we are, this, um, 
you know, giant thing. I'm sure there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of companies out there that said, ah, bah, I could do, I do better than that for breakfast or whatever. But for us, we think that's pretty cool. And we think we're, we're doing um, some pretty cool stuff. So our, uh, our backend, we're hosted in uh, Microsoft Azure. Uh, and we use a combination of services to process that, that data in. So we have a, a, um, a couple of proprietary, um, proprietary apps on that front door to try and process the, the error data in as fast as we possibly can. And then we use a, a queuing system to make sure that um, we, we catch every error on the way in. We do apply some, some high-level throttling of um, when somebody you know, runs into a particularly noisy issue, um, that can totally flood their UI with this one error in a matter of seconds. And so um, to, to stop that from happening, we put in these top-level throttles that, like, if you start sending data in really, really fast, at some point we start sampling it down just so that the customers don't, um, don't basically destroy the usefulness of the reports through one, uh, through one error. So we apply some of that throttling um, in a proprietary app that's reading in off of the queues. And then we store all of our data into an Elasticsearch cluster, which has been amazing for us. Um, we've been using Elasticsearch now for a um, little over a year, probably, um, and it's it's been able to really scale up with us. Um, at first, we we used Elasticsearch in kind of a traditional way, where you know we had another place where we were storing errors, and then we um, projected them into Elasticsearch to do interesting reporting things. But over time, we found that we never actually looked. We never did anything with errors that wasn't through Elasticsearch. And so today, that's the only place we keep them. We, Elasticsearch is our persistence mechanism. Um, and so we're storing all of our error data into Elasticsearch. We index it into there as fast as we can. And then we, um, we generate all of our UI, all of our reports off of that. Our UI is, is fairly, um, the technology stack is not all that interesting. It's an MVC4 app um, written in C Sharp. Um, but we're doing some pretty cool things on the UI. We try to keep it uh, real simple. Um, real understandable, real clean. Try not to make it too too busy or or bury it in a bunch of uh, of mechanics that aren't necessary to to actually solve an error. When you were choosing uh, a cloud platform, did you compare Amazon and Microsoft, or was it that your background was more Microsoft and you went with them? So we have um, over time considered several different cloud platforms. Um, uh, at the beginning, we we pushed into Azure um, because we got accepted to a program called Microsoft BizSpark. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, the business startups they helped you for a few years. Yeah, so they they you know give you a deal on pricing and and they help you with your software licenses and um and and that was actually really really cool. We've we've had a lot of um, great opportunities with that, um, and it's really in the early days of a startup when you're not making any money and you have costs coming out everywhere and it's actually going on your credit card, that's really important. There's some things to be like, oh man, we really need to set up another server to get to this next stage of growth. But if it's going on my credit card, we're not doing it. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, well, so, well, so like with BizSpark that those conversations just get a lot easier. Um, and so I would say that, you know, there's a pretty good likelihood that TrackJS wouldn't have made it out of that stage if we didn't have their support, um, we're we're nearing the end of some of of some of our arrangements there, and so um, we're trying to figure out where is the best place for our costs in different areas. 
Um, and so in some places we're, we are considering maybe having a hybrid approach. Um, we're kind of looking at, um, or we, we do some of our stuff in DigitalOcean today. DigitalOcean is very, very cool. Um, they only support Linux, but a fair number of our, of our components we can run on Linux. And, and their management is just, is really, really easy. And their reliability is stellar. Like we've so, so ne- what, sorry, what is DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean is, um, it's a Linux-only virtual machine hosting service. So it is really inexpensive, and it's inexpensive because they really limit the number of options you have. So there's really only like eight virtual machines you can ask for, and they only run Linux, and that you can't change how much like memory or hard drives or anything is in them. You just pick the one that will meet your constraints. But they all have solid-state drives, and they all have really fast processors, and they're really inexpensive. And so you can spin them up really fast, and you can build a cluster out and tear it down. And it's pretty easy to do that with Azure, but it's easier to do it in DigitalOcean. Um, It's just a little bit more constraining. And so where the parts of our code that will fit those constraints, we're looking at at doing some of that in DigitalOcean. Amazon is cool too. Um, the cost is higher. And so we're not entirely sure about that yet. Um, their reliability numbers are really attractive, but we're not sure how true that is um, when it actually comes to, to runtime. We've also you know, run some numbers on actually hosting some things ourselves. Um, there's a uh, physical hosting provider called OVH that we've heard about. Um, where you essentially rent pieces of metal in data centers around the world. And, uh, and obviously you don't have to deal with virtualization at that point. You like, you have this great big beefy server and you can do whatever you want to it. The downside of course, to that is that when a hard drive goes out in that thing, then you need to deal with it. You know, you have all the service, all that problems of actually managing infrastructure. So uh, if you can tell, this is actually something we're thinking a lot about right now. And I don't have any good answers but um, in the last you know, 18 months we've been running, Azure has been really, really good to us. And so there will definitely be a, a significant part of our infrastructure that stays there. Do you uh, have data centers around the world on Azure? No. Right now we are only hosted in U.S. East. Um, we haven't figured out a really good uh, replica- or replication strategy with our, in our own app to um, to host in multiple places at the same time. We use um, Azure Replication to make sure our data is sitting in multiple data centers so that we have um, you know, a disaster recovery plan if, if it was to go down. But we haven't figured out like the ability to actually run at the same time from US East and Europe at the same time yet. That's probably a little down the road for us. Are there any security concerns uh, with the data that you're sending from the browser back to your own system? That's a good question. It depends. So we take um, security real seriously with what we track. So by default, we try not to capture anything that we believe could be personally identifiable or confidential. So the things that the user is typing, we don't track like the value that they typed we track some metadata about the value. So for example, if the user is typing in their email address, what we'll track is that the user had entered 16 characters that shaped like an email address. And that's, that's the extent of the information that is actually sent to our servers. 
for password fields, we don't track, we don't know anything. We just know the user entered a password. Um, we track other uh, various regular expressions. Like we think this thing looks like a credit card. We think this thing looks like a social security number or a U.S. phone number or that sort of thing. But we don't know what the digits are. We don't actually track any of that. We don't want that information to come back to us. For similar reasons, um, when we're tracking our network requests, we don't um, we don't capture the request or the response headers or body um, just because we don't want any of that data that could have like session tokens and privacy tokens in it. Um, the one area where uh, potentially confidential data could slip through to us is in is through the console. And so one of the things we listen to is just the traditional JavaScript console log. Um, and so one of the things that we do when, we, when we're on the page is we wrap up console log and we make it so that it's usable in all browsers because some browsers don't have it natively. We make it so you can use it in all browsers and we encourage our customers to go ahead and write interesting state events to the log because you'll have that context when an error happens. But if they inadvertently write confidential information to that log, we have no way to know that that was confidential and we'll record it and it will come back to us. Just as if on a server side you inadvertently wrote, you know, somebody's input into a log file somewhere else, like you recorded what password they used or whatever, we would we would capture that data just along with everything else, and we wouldn't know anything about it. Um, so the the mechanism that we have that we've get, created around that is because it has happened a few times where a customer has inadvertently sent us credit card information. Um, is we give a we have a secure wipe. And so if the if a customer says, hey, you know, we've accidentally sent this data, they can trigger a secure wipe where we will essentially erase all of their data. <laughs> we all will, of their data. Yeah. Not, not just the offending entries. No, no, because we don't, we can't securely erase just an entry. Yeah. If, if you want it gone, if you want it to like not be on our systems at all, we got to just, we just have to dump the whole thing and it's gone. Um, which is, I mean, it's, it's the nuke from orbit option. Yes. Um, and so we, we caution customers not to send us this data to begin with, but um, it's really the only option that we have. Um, a few customers ask us about things like PCI compliance and HIPAA compliance and, and these sort of things. And today we don't um, claim any of those compliances and we say that we are out of scope for them because we don't capture personally identifiable data and we don't capture credit card data because you shouldn't send them to us. Um, and, and so that's, that's how we're dealing with that particular security issue. Um, a number of other customers, particularly in like financial and government, um, ask for uh, the ability to take TrackJS and install it in their own data center, which is something we're really interested in doing, but we're probably not pursuing it right now just because that's a very different cost model and it's a different mechanism to support it because then we're not just supporting one installation that we control. Yeah. We're supporting dozens of installations around the world. And Probably customization. Yeah, it, that's just that's a painful road to go down that I think we just need to wait until we are a little bit bigger company before we take that on. So actually that brings me on very nicely to the next question of how are you monetizing? We began um, charging for our service last March. Um, so I guess it's been almost a year. Um, so we, we did a private beta in October of, what was that? 2013. Yeah. October of 2013, we had a private beta and we invited, uh, six customers, um, that were not paying us at the time to use the product, um, and start giving us real data. And they crashed us multiple times as we realized all the things we needed to do, but we, we, we ended up with a really good product after it. Um, so after the, the, 
private beta. We went to a public beta in January of 2014. Um, and we, you know, started bringing in customers. And I think we grew to 200, 250 active accounts as part of our public beta. And we were getting some real good traction. So then we switched to a paid plan uh, in March of 2014. Um, and we chose to monetize based on how busy your application was. So the idea is that we are targeting people who have high value customers, who have like the, the value to them of each user interaction is relatively high. And so we price our system based on those users. So you qualify for a subscription to TrackJS based on how many hits per month your site gets. If you have a busier application, you need to go into a higher tier. If you have a less busy application, you can pay for a smaller tier. Any one of the tiers can send us any number of errors as fast as they can. We don't bill you based on errors. Um, I feel strongly that that is counterintuitive, or there's a, a counterforce there, because I want you to get to zero errors. And then when I help you get to zero errors, I don't want you to then stop having to be a TrackJS customer. I want, you're a great customer. We've helped you a ton. And I don't want to give you crappy information that's going to make you have more errors just so that you have to jump into a higher pricing tier. So it's, it's not about that. It's just about how busy your site is, which, you know, indirectly is important for us too, because if you have a really busy site and then somebody oops and drops an error on their site, it can, you know, you're going to get a lot of it can get into your Azure systems then, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. It would, you know, send in a lot of traffic fast. And so we have a couple of different subscription tiers based on how many hits you have. And it's just a monthly service after that of um, you subscribe, you, you pay us the monthly fee, and, and we'll track all of your errors for you and give you a UI to, to fix them. Sorry for jumping around a tiny bit, but that, that topic brought up an idea that if you have uh, sites that are incredibly busy and sites that are very uh, have very little traffic, are they all going to the same Azure queues, or do you have dedicated queues for certain customers? We each customer has their own queue, and so that's by design. Um, okay. So this was a problem that we would uh, we wrestled with from the very beginning was that we have some customers who are really quiet most of the time, and occasionally they'll get a few errors and they want to know about it and fix it. And then we have other customers that send us a flurry of errors all the time. They're just sending as like as fast as they can all the time, and so we needed to make sure that a noisy customer did not delay or interrupt the errors of a quiet customer. We needed to make sure that um, that just because somebody was, just because customer A was having an issue with their errors, customer B should not see their data delayed because of that. And so we set up this one into, or one um, queue per customer and we process the queues individually. So each customer gets the same treatment. We, we, we check it on the same frequency. If you were a really noisy customer, your errors get delayed. The other customers do not. Fair enough. Where do you see future development for TrackJS going? We have so many opportunities. Things, things are growing really fast. And is because the space that we're in is growing, is continuing to grow. So there's still developments with JavaScript um, frameworks, and there's talk about the, new, the, the upcoming third generation of JavaScript MVC frameworks as React and Angular and Ember start converging. Didn't even know that was happening. Well, it's, it's 
it's just the rumblings of it are, are starting as, as the teams are starting to work together and copy the good ideas from each other. And that's really exciting. Yes. But the underlying problems of JavaScript aren't really going away in that it's this incredibly complex asynchronous language running onto an environment we don't control. And so that we feel that's a good sign for us um, in that there's going to be a need for a tool like TrackJS for some time. And there's all kinds of interesting things that we could expand into. Um, we've talked about doing things like re- like um, checking on how fast uh, AJAX events load or um, expanding into different kinds of errors. Like we could expand into, um, I know there's not as much of it anymore, but like expanding into Flash and Silverlight and other kinds of plugins. Um, diving deeper into the mobile frameworks, tighter integrations with, with like Ionic and that sort of thing. So there's, there's just so many areas that we can go into. The, the area ha- has a lot of opportunity for us right now, um, and we're growing really quick. Any final notes, Todd? Yeah, so if, if any of your listeners are off, you know, building an Angular, Ember, or other JavaScript apps, I'd love it if you checked us out. Um, so we're out at trackjs.com, and you can try us free for 30 days. And just for you guys, just in case you guys really want to get in, if you email me, Todd at trackjs.com, and say, hey, I heard you on the No Dogma podcast, I'll give you three months for free. You just got nice. you just got to email me. Wonderful. Well, Todd Gardner, thank you very much for your time this evening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
The opening music was The Return by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was El Barzon by Los Amparito from the album Los Amparito. <laughs> 